Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you. The gospel according to Mark chapter 5 this morning. We have 20 verses to do, so it will be all down to business. None of those extremely funny jokes and things like that that I usually offer. Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, we'll take verses 1 through 20, and then we will get to business. Please stand for the reading of the word. Beginning in verse 1, Then they came to the other side of the sea, and the country, the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine, fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Please be seated. <clears throat> In preparation, I said, well, maybe I can read just ten of the verses. And the Lord said, read it all. Storms, which are subject to Christ, was the last event we read in chapter 4. And it's directly linked to what we're getting here in chapter 5. Jesus had been in Capernaum. He had been teaching and preaching parables. And he said to his disciples, let's get into the boat. And there they sailed across the Sea of Galilee, about six miles or so, to Gadara, where they now are. And uh, <clears throat> Christ is king. He is Lord. He's Lord over storms. He's Lord over demons. He is Lord over death. He's Lord over disease, everything. But he has a plan, and he's working it out. And so here they go through that that uh, derecho storm, that uh, straight line of wind that hit the boats. They survived it because he stood up and he said, peace be still. He told the storm to be muzzled. He didn't have to do that. He could have just willed it to, into submission, but he stood and did it in front of his disciples so that they would know that they were in the presence of one who was greater than any prophet that they ever read about. And that effect is just what happened, because at the end they were saying, who could this be? And even he commands the weather. Well, there's so much going on, because uh, here they survived the storm, or are they going to survive this maniac? 
And that is the title of this morning's message, The Maniac. And I think there are lessons for all of us. There are there's a limited amount of information given to us, but it's sufficient concerning the demons that are being faced here. And remember, there were other little boats with him. It was not just the boat with Jesus and his apostles, but other believers had tagged along. So in this fifth chapter, after the storm on the sea, we have this encounter with the demons. Then we have the woman with the disease. And finally, the child that had died. Demons, disease, and death, and storms. The very terrors that mankind is faced with. In each of these four events, from the storm to the raising of the child, desperate souls were driven in distress to Jesus Christ. Remember the last chapter, Master, do you care that, that we perish? They, they, here he was sleeping on a pillow, and they woke him up in the middle of the storm. And now he's faced with a demon. And one of the lessons that comes out of this fifth chapter is that a demonic soul is recoverable in Christ. That a diseased individual is curable in Christ. And that the dead can rise again because of Christ. These are the lessons we look for because we need all the help we can get to build up the spiritual man, to look beyond the things of this world, and to remember we serve an eternal king. He's not on a temporary throne somewhere on earth. He's on the throne of, in heaven over the earth. And so here, a maniac that he is faced with is a, a dictionary's definition of a maniac. A person exhibiting extreme symptoms of wild behavior, especially when violent and dangerous. Matthew, in his account of the same event, says in Matthew chapter 8, that this man was exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass by. He was violent. He was dangerous. In fact, Matthew mentions there were two of them. It was a tag-along. But this, there was one that was the primary. I'll keep it centered to the one that Jesus is centered on here in Mark, understanding that by the time he was done, both men were in their right minds. Now we look at verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. Now, this other side is Decapolis, as we get at the end of this chapter. Primarily, non-Jewish people are on this side at this time in the history of Israel. And so, you know, you look at the storm. They survived the storm. And now this, as soon as they get out of the boat, well, the maniac could see them coming. And so he was rushing at them. Uh, when we covered this before, my feelings were that if I were in the boat and I saw a maniac coming towards me, I'd grab one of the oars. <laughs> and I'd settle it as quickly as possible. It's not the style of our Lord. Not necessary with him. They, again, survived the storm, and Mark says immediately. It's like, oh, great. As soon as we come ashore, here's another threat. Another problem, such as life. You get through one storm and there's something crazy waiting for you after it. And Christ is expecting you with him to make it through. Verse 2, and when he had come out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So from the crazy weather to the crazy man, the disciples are faced with both on purpose Christ is intentionally doing this, and he's doing it in front of them, and he has a plan for more souls to be ministered to by what he is doing than just those that are with him. And that comes out in this story, too, in these, just these 20 verses. This intentional arrival at this shore for this man, not the first time Christ did it, in John's Gospel, we read in chapter 4, it says he needed to go through Samaria. Not some area, but Samaria. And he needed to go through that area because there was a woman who was going to be at the well, and Christ was going to reach her. And that he did, and he did not stop there. He reached the whole village through her. This is going to be a little different. He's going to reach this one maniac, but the village will not come along with him. In fact, the village will chase him away, as we just stood and read moment, 
moments ago. But this is deliberate. And he comes to meet this hopeless man as he met the woman because he's giving them a chance. He gave the Sumerians in their village a chance and he is giving these people in the Decapolis region a chance. Now, getting ahead of myself is an interesting part. They blow this, most of them. But he's coming back again. Twice more, at least, he comes back to Decapolis. He doesn't give us just one chance to get it right. He gives us many chances. In verse 3, speaking about the maniac, he says, Who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because... He had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. Maybe somebody's offended at the time, at the, the, that the man was a maniac. Well, what would you like to call him? A gerbil? I mean, it's just serious stuff. And this trying to constantly water down words to get away from what they mean is not helpful. It's not said in a way to insult. We're getting to the fact this man was destabilized in a very drastic way. He wasn't a little crazy. He was big crazy. He was dangerous. He was a menace. And not only to others and to himself. He had the wrong kind of reputation. This is the kind of reputation you don't want in life. Luke adds this. He was kept under guard. That's before he broke away to the tombs. Because, again, he was a big problem for everyone else. Beyond human help, couldn't help himself. In fact, he was hurting himself. Nowadays, they try therapy and they try drugs on cases, cases such as this. At best, they can stabilize the individual through the drugs. But they cannot deliver them. This is outright demon possession. And man does not have a physical solution to spiritual demon possession. There's a spiritual element introduced into the mind that only God can deal with. And that is what we're learning from this. And now God does deal with it through his people, through his word. But it is a very serious thing. And there are heightened times in history where uh, the, the demon possession is ramped up, it seems, from reading in Scripture. Um, but you kind of look at history and you wonder, you scratch your head and you say, I think it just shifts from place to place in its intensity from time to time. But it always seems to be here somewhere. You hear about some of the atrocities committed, just say, in other, some of the other countries of the world. And you just say, that's not human. That's demonic. Even bad people do not go to that extreme. There are devils. There are those that are spiritual, and they are active, and the Bible is not apologizing for it, just makes no attempt to covering it up. In fact, it brings it to the surface to deal with it. It doesn't tell us all we want to know about them, because we don't need to know all that there is about them. What we need to know is what the Scripture tells us. It is sufficient. Uh, we don't read about the disciples then pulling Jesus aside and saying, give us some more details about these demons. And yet, after Christ ascends to heaven, the apostles themselves are dealing with these demons. Verse 5, And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. You know, it's, it's an odd thing that if today somebody is spiritually possessed, that to say that they're spiritually possessed is somehow an insult or, you know, mean-spirited. That they can only be diagnosed, that can give fancy titles to ailments without cures. That's the world of psychology and psychiatry. They've got a bunch of titles for everything. I don't think they've got many solutions. Well, the world's got to have some response to these things so they don't have Christ. And the mercy of God has given them something to address it with. But why hurt himself? Zero love going on there. That's what demons do. The demons themselves are out of their mind. Anyone here wanting to hurt themselves? If you want to hurt yourself, can you just skip that step? Can you just skip the step of hurting yourself and line up with Christ and be useful? Because to him, everything 
is there for you to be useful to him. It's your choice. Satan wants you to hurt yourself. He wants churches to hurt themselves. He wants humanity. He hates humanity. Christ loves humanity. These self-inflicted wounds. They could be seen by everybody that was in the boats that day that came ashore to, show, to watch what was going on. Scary monuments on his body to the work of Satan and the fall of man. How do we know everybody could see them? Well, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 8 in his account, parallel account, and he wore no clothes, Luke eight twenty seven. So verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Just a glimpse at the Son of God. Just a glimpse of him. Demanded submission. It demands it from created beings. The man, who is now monster-like, sees Christ and bows before him because every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And this, in microcosm, is a picture of all humanity, in the end, will bow to Christ. Some to benefit, others not. They were not free to ignore him, and they were not free to escape from him. They were compelled by forces greater than themselves, or I should say a force greater than themselves, to come and bow down before him. And that force was his divinity, who he was. Even in his humanity, he never let go of his divinity. So the man with demons inside was now bowing before Jesus Christ in front of everybody. And the translators, taking the words from the Greek, are very clear that he came to Christ and he worshipped him. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses in their watchtower renderings or corruptions of the Scripture like to change that word because they do not want anyone to think that Christ was worthy of worship because that would put him on the level with God the Father. But you can't edit it out. Because it is illustrated in so many other ways. Even just when you get to the book of Revelation, towards the end, you start speaking, starts telling us about the Lamb of God. It puts him on the same level as God the Father. Because he is equal with the Father. Not counting it robbery. Well, inside this man was a soul ready to be freed. And Christ knew it. But there are those that are not ever ready to be freed in less horrid conditions. Some are not demon-possessed, but they don't want to be free from their own carnality, from their self, from the world. But this man, he's not scoffing. The man inside. There are multiple personalities here. There is the man, and then there's the personality of over 2,000 demons that seem to have a spokesman. There's not a human being on earth that could deal with something like this. Not without God. His body, as mentioned, covered with scars of self-inflicted wounds that he had acquired over a period of time. His hair, his beard, likely matted and dirty and filled. What a sight he must have been just to look into his eyes. Have any of you ever been, I don't know, you might have seen it elsewhere, but I know you'll see it in the big cities. You will see demon-possessed. Because ride the subways in New York City. I don't mean the commuters. I mean there are people living in the subways that aren't behaving like human beings. And you can see some of this in, in the, some of the cities in this country, I think, more easily than you can see them elsewhere. Verse 7 and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Who's talking here? Well, the demon is overruling the man, the host, at this, at this moment. There's a war. There's an intense conflict inside. And so the demon is saying when he says, and he cried out with a loud voice, What have I to do with you, Jesus Son of the Most High God, he says, why are you bothering me? I'm not bothering you. What a sassy little punk. You are bothering the Lord by bothering humanity. 
God is not indifferent to these things. And so they were. Yeah, they were bothering him. The fact, the evil spirits who appear in the New Testament, they make no mistake about the person of Christ. They know who he is. That mistake is reserved for humans who enjoy scoffing at the Lord, who pretend that he is not who he says he is. But the demons knew who he was. We covered this in chapter 1. And now we're covering it again. But here the voice of the evil one confesses Christ to be the son of the most high. That is linked to Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar had become so full of himself he was going crazy and didn't even know it. He has this dream. Daniel comes in and explains it to him. He says, you're the one. You're going to go nuts. But you're going to be restored. But within that dream, Daniel chapter 4 verse 17 we read, we read what Nebuchadnezzar heard. In order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will. God is Most High. He is sovereign. And his people must learn to be content with that. And other Christians before us have suffered and died horrid deaths attached to that understanding. Refusing to let go. Looking beyond this life. It talks about it in, in Hebrews chapter 11. The world wasn't worthy of these people, it says in chapter 11 of Hebrews. And so the demons call him the son of the most high, putting him equal with God the Father. And without hesitation, after they say this, you know, why have you come to us, son of the most high? Without hesitation, they slander him. Accuse him of being a tormentor. They can't help themselves. Wickedness is wickedness. And it's going to do what it does. And here we are seeing it happen. I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Well, what gave you the idea that he's going to torment you? Well, of understanding that he is high and holy and clean and you are not. They did not care that they were tormenting the man. Yet they wanted to be. Shielded from such agonies. Such is evil. Such are evil people. They want mercy. They just don't want to give any of it up. They will accuse the innocent of the guilty things that they are doing. I know I'm not going to. I'm trying not to go into, the, you know, the news media and all of the rest that are in that group of liars and, and treacherous uh, treasonous is the word I want. Verse 8. For he said to him, Christ speaking, now come out of the man unclean spirit. And again, scripture makes no effort to hide the fact that evil spirits exist and that they target human beings and inhabit them and create such a disaster as this. We don't know how the man got into this condition. We're not told. It really is not rebel, uh, relevant, except we can say through observation, collective observation over the centuries, that dipping and dabbing in the occult, the occult will open that door. Drug abuse, egregious immorality. I mean immorality that is over the top, that is animalistic. And of course, some of the cults that are out there, these open the mind to evil spirits. And once they get in, they don't leave of their own accord. They get hold of people because they invade bodies. They are a menace to the mind. They refuse to leave. Now, I must add here, before I lose some of the audience, born-again believers cannot be demon-possessed. They can be a nuisance. They can be pretty stupid. They can be dumb. And the opposite, too. They can be wonderful. They can be smart. I mean, it goes both ways. But they cannot be demon-possessed. The light and the darkness cannot dwell together. So when we read of demon-possessed people in the Scripture, they're not born again. Yet, in this man's case, he's going, he's going to be quite a tool in the hands of the Lord. And so the rules and the rulers of darkness, the rules are often beyond us. Paul keeps it short. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, 
against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. The spiritual places. That heavenly places translated heavenly, but it's really spiritual places. The unseen world that is around us. There are laws that we know about that are spiritual, and there are many laws that we do not know about. That was the case with Job. Essentially, God says, listen, I'm not going to lay it out to you. There are laws you just don't know about. But here's what happened. And he tells Job, you know, you were a battleground. For my glory, for the benefit of of countless multitudes through the ages that will read your story and gain strength in the faith and remain strong in the faith faith while they endure the most awful circumstances and attacks by the underworld and other human beings as well. Because Satan was not the only one that attacked Job. Incidentally, three of his quote-unquote friends wasted, well, they did waste seven days, and then they made up for it. And they attacked Job, talking about things they knew nothing of. Anyway, many lost souls, they perish in sin because they deny the existence of a very personal Satan. Now, when we say Satan, it includes Lucifer, but it's not limited to him. Uh, Lucifer is not going to target your average individual. He saves himself. He's got bigger fish to fry. He goes for the heads of nations. But he's got enough minion, enough flunkies to assign them to target everybody else. And it is a fact that there are souls perishing in their sin because they deny the existence of Satan and his helpers, sneering at the idea while Satan plays them like a fiddle. And as long as they deny the existence of these evil forces, it is not very much anyone can do. Except preach the truth, and under the conviction of the Spirit, they get converted. They come out of the darkness, and they see what's going on. Demons, like the flesh, they are usurpers. They take over. They don't ask for permission. They snatch it. They intrude. These demons here had no claim to this man's body or his mind, the soul of the man. The soul is that part of us that interacts with each other. And so he is enslaved. Verse 9. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered, saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now Christ, again, is exposing to his disciples and followers what is going on here. That while the man is still functioning, he's not functioning correctly. There is a major defect. And it is a, an external force has been introduced to the man. It's been put inside of him. Something external is now internal. And it is demonic. It is spiritual. And he wants his disciples to understand that there is a real war with an entity, an enemy... Known as the adversary, Satan. The word Satan means adversary. The word devil means slanderer. That's what the adversary does. He talks bad about us. He attacks us verbally in any other kind of way he is allowed to attack us. But once, once upon a time, this man had his own identity. He was born, he was given a name, and he grew up, and at some point, he lost his identity to these demons. And Christ is saying to us, but he's recoverable. That which the demons have gotten hold of, I will restore, if the person will let him. It says here, and he answered, saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. That's not his proper name. It comes out in verse 15, of course, and it's coming out here. Now, a full Roman legion was over almost 7,000 men. Infantry and cavalry and support. The idea here is not that this was a full Roman legion of 6,000, you know, 800 demons. The idea is that he was packed with them. He had divisions of them, military divisions of demons. He was loaded. Now, again, those without Christ to the world, as they observe these behaviors in humans, they come up with names such as dissociative identity disorder, and those names are all impressive, I guess. They just don't fix it. Not enough to give it a label. We need power. 
He has a split personality, split up with these demons. And the Bible gives us a spiritual diagnosis, demon possession. That's what he had. That the world scoffs at. Oh, come on, he's just sick. No, this, this one, this one is demon possessed. Are there physical ailments that can drive a person mad? Sure. Uh, rabies, uh, left untreated, will drive you mad. For example, I mean, there are other things. But this one is demonic. Over the years in preaching about this stuff, usually there's someone that gets offended. I don't get it. They get offended that, that you can say that there are people that are demon-possessed that are labeled as being insane, but they actually have demons. Uh, I, I look, I don't, the only thing I can tell you is I go by the Scripture. That's good enough for me. I do not ask the world what they think. I ask the Lord what He thinks. And I'm satisfied with that. Now, if we're talking about maybe recipes to make an omelet or something, I'll go to the world for something like that. Anyway, and I understand sometimes it's because they have a loved one that maybe is unstable. And they think that I'm saying to them that it's automatic demon possession. Uh, There are other factors. But we won't go there now. We're going to stay right here. Satanic legions behind this man's failure, behind the failure of nations. I mean, you look, at, you look at Nazi Germany, and you see a nation under the influence of demonic forces. You see people at the highest levels of their government, demonic. And just, just um, I mean, industrialized genocide, where you create factories to kill people in bulk, repet- re- repetitively. And it's demonic. I mean, what the, what the Japanese did to Manchuria and what they did in Chichijima and other places, the cannibalism. This is, this is egregious immorality and sin. This is off the chart. This is not a person stealing from one person to make themselves feel better about something. This is demonic. It is real. It is documented. If you want to sit there and say, well, they have, you know, dissociative disorder or whatever, you go right ahead. The Bible knows better, and I side with God. But here is the problem with this. To this day, we have Christ, the Christ Haters Club, all over the earth, inspired by spiritual adversaries on multiple levels. It's like a pyramid. At the bottom, you've just got the dupes, but as you move up to the top of the pyramid, fewer in number, yes, but, but demonic. It intensifies their evil. What is our response to it? Righteous defiance. That is our response to all evil. Truth and love. We don't move. We have a king. We serve him. Jesus said, you know, if, if, if I were of this world, the king of this world, my, my subjects would fight for me. But I'm, I got bigger things. We have to learn this lesson. Especially we here in America who have enjoyed so much freedom. And those who stand for lies... Refuse the truth of Jesus Christ. We know that. Those are the ones being played by a fiddle. For example, not only are they doing evil, but the neo-evil, the end-time evil, is recruiting people. And you know who they're targeting the most? The young. Because they think you're dumb enough to believe it. And sadly, they are sometimes. Not all the time. Then, I've noticed something. The young become recruited by Satan, and then they recruit their parents. The parents begin to sympathize. Oh, you know, you got a point there. And in so doing, he takes down a whole family, a whole household, a whole church, a whole city, state, nation. These are real things, and you just look out the window. You see them taking place. I don't mean literally look out the window. You'll see parked cars, but... Look around society and what's going on in the world. Satan says, you know, Jesus is love. One, one of his lies. And it's okay to be homosexual. Well, okay, well, let me ask you then, is it also okay to murder you? Is it okay to murder too? Are we going to downsize that one? Or you just pick the ones you want? So you don't get the pick. Because the Bible has made it clear. You should not lie, Leviticus 18, 
22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. It is something that is hated. But yet they're selling it to our kids. They're selling it to our adults. Doesn't mean we hate them. Hate them or not is wrong. In the eyes of God. That's what we're interested in. Is God supposed to say, oh, oh, you like it that much? Okay, let me change it. Okay, this is goals for now. Methamphetamine. Want to be a crackhead? And affect your children? Want to be a heroin addict? Infect your children? Oh, go right ahead because you want to do it. God doesn't do that. Under Satan's spell, the world will advocate the murder of the unborn. They're justifying. In fact, they will advocate the murder of the justborn to cover themselves in their filth. And we're supposed to come along and say, look, we can't change anybody's mind, but we can be used by the Lord to get in front of those whom God is changing. And he's going to use us to do it. You don't have to like it. It's going to happen. That's that defiant spirit. That is, that is a father saying, as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. If the rest of my house doesn't serve the Lord, I'm serving the Lord. That's the mother standing up and saying, as for me, I don't know what the rest of you are going to do. I want you to serve Christ. But if you don't, I'm serving him. That's the children standing up and saying, look, mom, dad, I'm hoping you're serving the Lord. But if you're not, I'm serving the Lord. That's righteous defiance. What's the alternative? Sniveling? Uh, backing down from the faith? Christ does not back down from any of these people as we go through this story. Wherever I'm at, whatever verse I'm on. <laughs> verse 10, let's try that one. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. What is that? What is going on there? Why? Does he not have a visa? I mean, his passport's not up to date. Well, I hate the picture on it. He must have feared the overlords in the underworld. There must be this that I mentioned. There are spiritual laws we're not privy to. We get little hints of them. And here's a big one. He wants to stay where he is. This legion, we know we've huddled up here. We find it even in our own world, we, we, there's, there's, there's chaos and anarchy. In verse 11, now a large herd of swine was feeding near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. So to the demons, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And this is helpful to us. Verse 13. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. I did not set my timer. So we begin right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, we know how you have the page turner for pianists. We need to have a timer pusher for dumb pastors. Anyway, back to our lesson this morning. So here in verse 13, uh, when they, they had said, send us into the pigs, Jesus said, go for it. He's <laughs> just like, a, as you wish, knowing what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen. Now, the disciples, they're not, they can't see the demons and like ghosts rise up and go into the man. They're just watching this exchange take place. But they can see that stampede of, of swine rolling down the hill off the cliff. And they knew that wasn't like, oh, you know, Mars must have lined up with Jupiter and we didn't even know about it. This was directly related to the word of the Lord. Come out. Can we go into the, de to the pig? Sure, have at it. And there was the proof. Now, only Mark counts how many swine there were. I don't know why, but he is the one that tells us there were 2,000. And so what is the lesson? One human being can hold more demons than 2,000 pigs. Is that not incredible? That has something to think about the capacity for evil in humanity, in human beings. There's a big difference between humans and animals. They're not the same. This is confirmation 
that demons cannot successfully inhabit animals. You have a mean, vicious dog, he's not demonic. He may, he may look like he is or something. His instincts are what they are. But only the unsaved can be possessed by demons. Now, here we're seeing in addition to Christ muzzling the storm, he is casting out an army of ill spirits. And it is also interesting that the swine seem to prefer death than possession. They wanted to, their survival plan backfired. They wanted to be embodied spirits, embodied in some other living creature, and it failed. Now they're, they're disembodied after all. What happens after that? Uh, they roam around looking for someone else. We know that much from another story of Christ. But Mark had already recorded Jesus' words, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder his house. And that's what's taking place here. Christ has come in, and he's cleaning house, because he is stronger than the demons that were in the man. So God says, Yeah, in spite of what happens, still the man is more important than the animal. Matthew 12, 12, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep. It's something we have to accept. It's, it doesn't mean that there's some horrible, therefore, you know, therefore every, all the animals are going to, we can be cruel to them. And they go, you know, it doesn't mean anything like that. It just means that man is more valuable to God than animals, according to Jesus Christ. And it does not take brains to be destructive. A person can have brains and be destructive, or they can be dumb and be destructive. Many a home, many a church, many a country has been ruined by fools. And we need to recognize that, because what is the purpose of the lessons always? Is it I? Is it me, Lord? One of you will betray me tonight. And they all said, is it me? They were concerned. They did not want to be that person. Well, when we come to the scripture and we have good and evil lined up next to each other, we are supposed to say, is it me? Am I this guy? Am I the fool? Am I the one being played by a, like a fiddle? Am I the one that the world has recruited using my carnality, my urges, my passions, my emotions? The spirit is supposed to overrule your emotions. Do you not know that? If you say, but I just feel... Yeah, what does the Bible say? Because that has to be the deciding factor for the believer. And when you're young, you don't know these things yet. You might think you do. You may know portions of it. But if you're getting it wrong, you're either defying God to his face or you just don't get it. And that does not mean that Satan's going to show you mercy. Uh, the Bible does not say, blessed are the dumb. We are supposed to be enlightened, and that takes work. It's not automatic. And that's why Satan spends so much time trying to dumb down the church and say, you know what, let's skip the preaching. Let's just keep singing. Everybody just feel good about everything. But let's not expand our understanding of spiritual things, and let's surely not be convicted. If we're doing something wrong, the best way to handle that, says the flesh, is to not hear about it. The Spirit knows better. Now, you can't only hear the bad things. You just be pummeled. That's not the idea either. It's striking the balance, which is the definition, essentially, of grace. The balance given by God. Verse 14. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Well, first off, that... The interim between they going to tell this to the city to tell the story, then come back with the whole mob. Christ had time to minister to the man he delivered from the evil spirit. Now, are we going to criticize the Lord for des destroying someone else's property? Well, first off, was it really him? I mean, I mean, it was the demons. Just because he said, "Sure, all right, maybe you don't like that one." How about this one? He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. Everything is owned by him. It is his prerogative. If he wanted to destroy the people too, that it could have been the way if he wanted it to go that way, which he did not. He has every right to interfere, to exercise lordship 
at his will or he is not Lord. But he is. Verse, uh, so, m- m- pause there a second. So we see laws, spiritual laws. We don't understand them all as I mentioned. It's sort of like before men could harness flight. They knew it was possible. They just saw birds and bugs flying. And they knew it existed. But the laws of gravity kept them on the ground until they learned the laws of aerodynamics. Then they used one law to overcome another law. The law of aerodynamics coming over the laws of gravity without violating anything. And such it is with Christ. He has rules and laws. We don't know them all, but he knows how to overcome them without violating the laws that are interlocked together. Verse 15. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Well, they didn't come to Jesus for salvation. It was profound words. They, then they came to Jesus. We use that saying, I came to Jesus, I got saved. But that's not what's happening here. Matthew tells us the whole city came out. Some go to church. Or some read the Bible with this identical attitude. They're not coming for salvation. They're coming for confrontation with Christ. He knew they were not coming to hear or to be healed, but to be rid of him. It says here in verse 15, And saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion. There he was, a living miracle, another living miracle, sitting and clothed in his right mind. It sums up the mission of God in Christ on humanity. The message and the mission of Christ to come to seek to save that which is lost. To put it in its right mind. By one nod of Christ, the unclean spirits fled this man and perished, as far as we understand it. And here the man is now clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. Something very wrong with the soul that is more afraid of goodness than wickedness. What were they? They should have been in awe. They should have said, Lord, you saved this man. You delivered him. All we could do was shackle him, and we couldn't do a good job at that. You freed him. They too should have bowed the knee and worshipped him right there on the spot. That's what he came there for. The Samaritans got it. What's their excuse? Here was power beyond their understanding, and it filled them with dread. But the believers from the little boats and the big boat, they were in awe. If Christ cannot reach you, it is because of you. It is not because of him. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And that is without change. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And so here they were face to face with awesome goodness, original holiness. In Christ, divine power and God's love, face to face with it. And they didn't like it. They recoiled at it. They feared. They feared it. And they found it not worth keeping. So verse 16, and those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon possessed and about the swine. And they began to plead with him to depart from their region. They began to plead with him. I mean, it's just knowing what we know, it's crazy. But knowing what they knew, who's the maniac? Who's the maniac now? Who is the one that is doing violence to their own soul? A whole city. A city as we consider it, but large, mostly. A big village, a lot of people, enough. This is the real madness that men would chase God away from them. When they have every reason to hold on to him. The world thinks it's better off without Jesus Christ. That's what these men did. They felt they were better off without him. If this is what it's going to take to have Jesus around, you know, we don't want you. The man was better off without the demons. The swine were better off without the demons. 
These men, uh, they did not need demons to reject Christ. You don't have to have a demon to tell Christ to leave you alone. You can just be a sinner. That's all. Self-willed, blind, and not willing to receive him. How many come in here? How many sit and say, I believe the word of God. I believe in Jesus Christ. But I don't believe what the Bible says. Or I need to change what the Bible says. We have quite a few. You have whole universities with seminaries of people like that. It's boring. That's what, you know, the next time you come across somebody who is a liberal theologian. You know what a liberal theologian is? One who doesn't believe in the Bible. That's what it means. They believe in some parts of the Bible. They get to pick and choose what parts to believe and what parts not to believe. That is a liberal, liberal theologian. And you risk some serious damage to yourself and others by lining up with such people. It is sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority for life and how we should behave and not... Uh, really anything else. Well, anyway, they did not care about the swine. They cared about the income from the swine. Wasn't that they were you know, animal lovers and we did a horrible thing? The demons, they can stay in the man so long as we're making money. That's what this amounts to. Do we not find this kind of thinking? Let me just ask you. At the high, at the, at the pyramid, the top of Wall Street, do you think they're more interested in salvation or money. Top of the big corporations. Maybe it's the top of a home. Maybe it's the top of at the top of an individual's mind. What is more important? Money moves men more than mercy and miracles without Christ. This is the seed by the wayside. Christ planted the seed through this action. And Satan comes and just snatches the seeds up. To them, Jesus was a greater threat than the maniac. They'd rather live with the man in the tombs, howling all night long, cutting himself, than have Jesus with them. There's a serious problem here when men are more afraid of godliness than wickedness. I'm more sorry for the loss of money than the gain of holiness. And so they didn't give him a chance. Who knows? Jesus could have said, you know what? Yeah, the pigs are dead, but look, here's a herd of sheep. He could have fixed this if he wanted. Jezebel could have gone in all sorts of directions, but they didn't give him a chance. And how many times do we see that? How many times do we see a human being not give Jesus a chance because there's trouble in their life? And he doesn't heal it or stop it right away. So they depart. They say they were saved, but they go out and they get in trouble or whatever happens, and all of a sudden they're no longer interested. Verse 18 And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. Well, Christ is not going to force anyone to have him around. So he's going to go in the boat. He could have stayed, but he goes. The converted man, the man that was emancipated from the demons, he wants to stay with Jesus to become one of his disciples. The one man from Gadara at this point, this is where where they are, full of wonder and gratitude. He just wanted to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, no. But he doesn't say, no, you can't be a believer. No, you cannot follow me in other ways. He's just saying, you can't roll with me right now. Why is that? One party asked him to go. This one asked him to stay. Christ got in the boat. His ship was sailing without those people. Consider it. Christ left them. They are left behind. But what about this guy? We want to focus on him. Verse 19. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Christ knew what to do with him. Saved him and said, You know what? Your calling is not with me. Your calling is to preach me where I'm not going right now. As I mentioned, Christ is coming back to this region at least twice more, and it will be a different reception next time. And I believe largely because of this man. He bore in his body the marks of demons. Now he's in his right mind. Nobody can dispute this. We knew you were wacko. Nobody could chain you up. Nobody could do anything with you. 
And now here you are telling us how good the Lord is. Making breakfast for everybody. (laughs) What has happened to you? Jesus is what's happened to me. Is this missing from our lives? Are we missing this wherever we go? We haven't, we lost our impact on our surrounding because we are too preoccupied with something else. When we walk into a room of unbelievers, the presence of Christ is already there. When we walk into that room, there should be a connection. They should at least know that somebody different is here now. Some of you in the workplace, you experience this. So we have a responsibility to tell how Christ has delivered us. That's what this is saying. Christ is saying, you've been delivered. I want you to go now and tell everybody, especially those who know you. Since he knew enough to be saved, to want to follow Christ, he knew enough to preach Christ. And that is what he did. Verse 20. And he departed and began to proclaim it in Decapolis, all that Jesus had done for him, and all were amazed. We'll get this in chapter 6 and chapter 7 when he does return to this area. Decapolis, two Greek words, Deca and and Polis, ten cities. And so there were these ten cities. This is important to the story. There are these ten cities with a main drag, a main highway running through it, from Damascus through, to Arabia on the, on the edge of the desert. A lot of people, caravans, came through that region. And here is where Christ planted this man to preach the gospel. To prep them. To prep them for when he came back. You know, any of you have, you know, maybe like a chainsaw or a, or a gas-powered chainsaw or, or leaf blower? You've got to prime it to get it to go. And that's what this man is. He's the primer. When Christ comes back, they would have heard already things about him. And when he comes back, they're going to be bringing their sick to him. They're going to be coming out to him. This is very much. So when Jesus said, let's get in the boat, let's go to the other side. He beats back the storm. He beats back the demons. But he's got more work to do before that happens. He's got to deal with disease and death after this episode here. So the man with scars, living testimony... 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. Paul says to the Corinthians, who were largely a pain in the neck. Do I ever miss saying something like that when we talk about the Corinthians? It's a ch- Listen, we as a church, we need to get back to the epistles. I'm not looking forward to it. It's a painful experience for me. But it's necessary. You have to understand why we do what we do as Christians, and it's found in the precepts. When we say someone needs to sit under the word before they're used, it's found. Let these first be proven, Paul said. We have to get these things. When you, when you come across Christians that think it's okay to be crazy in church, Paul stabilizes that in his Corinthian letters. So here he says to them, you are our epistle in our hearts, known and read by all men. That's what this man is. He's an epistle of Christ now known and read by all men that come in contact with him. Difference is, he has all of these scars on his body. So I ask you and I ask myself, am I, Lord Jesus, am I your letter of truth and love to other people? Am I your letter or have I lost something? Maybe I never had it. Maybe I've been confused by it. Confusion weakens us. Getting the essentials right gives us strength and power. Well, that's all 20 minutes. <laughs> Let's pray. Our Father, these uh, are real events that took place in another time and another place, but they've been documented for us, preserved to make us stronger, and better at serving you. Perhaps, perhaps as you've been listening, and you're, I'm speaking to those who've not opened their hearts to Christ. If you've never opened your heart to Christ and you've been listening, you can't miss the fact that there is a strong distinction between those who come to Christ and those who refuse him. There will be a stronger distinction at the great throne of Christ on Judgment Day. To avoid the judgment of condemnation, eternal condemnation, 
One is given a chance right now in this life to come. If you open your heart, if you make this prayer with me, if you want to belong to Christ, if you want your sins forgiven, all of them, then you must come to him. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments. I ask you to forgive me. There is no one else to go to. There is no other God. I ask that you not only forgive me, but that from this day forward, you would be the king, the ruler, the Lord over my life and my heart. I ask that you would fill me with your spirit and with your love and that I would serve you from this day forward without shame. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of it. May they make their confession known at the invitation at the end of the service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.